and hello. My name is Lily Bacala Piper, and I am so glad that you have joined me today. Have you gotten vaccinated yet? Have your parents gotten vaccinated? Are you based in the continent? Well, for me, as an Ethiopian American living in Nairobi, questions of vaccine access, vaccine equity, and quite frankly, the validity of the vaccines are still swirling in the conversations I'm having with family and friends. While the Western media has covered the vaccine rollout in the West and in Europe quite extensively, we are not hearing enough about the questions that remain for people of color and Black people in particular on the continent. We're still asking questions about the efficacy of the vaccine, how it was developed, what will happen if we can only get one dose. So many questions still remain. And to tackle some of those questions, last week I had the great privilege of partnering with the Kilimani Project Foundation to host a webinar where we talk to our community and ask them, what is on your mind? What are the answers that you need to make the sound decisions regarding the vaccine? The Kilimani Project Foundation invited Dr. Githinji Kitahi to join us. And let me just tell you, he was the perfect guest to both offer us the science and the wisdom that we need to navigate this next stage of the pandemic. Dr. Gitahi is the Amroth Health Africa Group CEO and a medical doctor who's been practicing in Nairobi for many years. Dr. Gitahi has been leading Amref since 2015, and Amref is the largest African-led international organization in the continent. Their work reaches over 11 million people every year through their over 150 health-focused projects. Dr. Gitahi spent time with us to just tackle the questions that we heard from our neighbors in our community. And I just want to really appreciate the Kilimani Project Foundation and their entire team for making an opportunity for us to ask those questions and get the answers we needed in a timely way. This episode was recorded on May the 7th, so if you're listening to this a little bit later on, as you know, the science continues to evolve and change. But in the meantime, Dr. Kitahi set our minds at ease and offered us the information that we have been asking for. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Kitahi and the Kilimani Project Foundation community to this episode of Uproot. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Kilimani Project Foundation. It's really an honor to be invited into your community and to this conversation today. It's really a privilege. Dr. Gitahi Karibu, it's just an honor to have you here on the program today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me start with this question. It, it might sound simple, but I think it's something that we still see coming up is, you know, how does the vaccine work and how is it developed? Can you give us the, the everyday layman's terms about how the vaccine was developed? All right, uh, good question. And I think it's good to start from the basics. So number one is what's a vaccine. Um, let's first start with our own bodies. Now our own bodies, when you're born, you come from a sterile environment in the womb, completely sterile, uh, protected from viruses, bacteria, and anything else. But when you are born, you come into this world where viruses and bacteria are in our community. They are part of us actually. Um, if I was to take a healthy human being and uh, check viruses on their hands, on their face, in their mouth, every part of their body, I will find millions and millions of viruses and bacteria. So we live with them. But how mm. come we live with them, but they don't affect us? 
it is because we have something we call innate immunity or natural immunity that we are born with. So when a baby is born and they come out, they have the immunity and that what we call non-specific immunity includes your skin. Your skin is part of your protection so that if it's broken, you're more likely to be infected than when it's, um, it's integral. So this is the normal immunity that we have. But then when, as we grow, we meet new organisms. When a baby is born, they will come across a bacteria that may cause pneumonia, or they may come across a malaria parasite or another virus. How do they protect themselves from this? They develop immunity that's called acquired immunity. So the first one is you're born with, but then you may acquire acquired immunity. Now this acquired immunity, which is your own way of protecting yourself against new things, can be acquired either by being infected, in which case when you get infected, your body has its own mechanism of recognizing the enemy that has gotten into you that you didn't know before, and then very quickly, very quickly adjusting itself mm -hmm. and creating some things we call antibodies, almost like bullets or ammunition against that particular um, you know, uh, organism. It's like if you have an attack on your house and you were not prepared, there are things you do. You quickly get things up. You probably put a chair sure. behind the window. You get a knife in your kitchen. That's what the body does. But what if you wanted to develop the immunity without waiting for the attack on your house? What would you do? That's a vaccine. Vaccine. You would then okay. put cameras. You would put this. You'd put burglar proofing. This is what the vaccine does. So the vaccine actually gives you a view of, in case you are attacked by these viruses, this is how you'd respond. That's what we call a vaccine. So how do you develop it? Because there is a question I had there that's an important question. So you need to first identify the organism that's likely to cause the challenge. So how do you identify? You know some people are infected, they have probably died, and therefore you're like, that's of concern. So you, you identify that particular organism, you then take it to the lab and identify key features around it. And then you say, if the body was to be attacked by this virus, it needs to develop antibodies that look like follows. And therefore you use animals first to test. So you don't use human beings and fetuses. You use animals, that's what we call preclinical phase. And when you've applied these things to the animals and you've seen the kind of antibodies they use or they develop, then you now map those antibodies and then you develop what we call a clinical phase one. And you now use a few human beings who volunteer to be part of it. And those human beings are given these antibodies and then you see how they develop, then you go to phase two, you use more, phase three, you use even more until you are confirmed that. And all these phases require approval at every phase. And finally, you are told this is safe. It has been shown to be effective and therefore it can go to the market. So that's the process that we follow. But vaccines are different types. And remember that vaccines started in the 18th century. So they're not new. So they have been with us. They're the reason yeah. we don't have children dying of all these diseases. So this is the bigger picture of vaccine use. So let me let me add on to that uh, a similar question. So in that development, I think some of the concern is we had heard right when COVID hit, it's going to be four years before they develop a vaccine. It's going to take time. So now when we see ourselves a year later, uh, these being widely globally available, people are concerned about the time it took. So was the same rigor applied in these vaccine developments as it was for yellow fever or other vaccines that we're a bit more familiar with and comfortable with? Correct, and that's a valid concern that people have because of course, traditionally, we have actually taken up to 10 years or six years to develop vaccines. But let me give you an example. Many years ago, 
how long did it take you to take money to your parents in Ethiopia from Kenya? You mm. probably went, you queued, you sent the money. You have to find somebody even, who's going even. <laughs> when you find someone who's going, you say, when are you leaving? You yeah. go to their house, you give exactly. them the money. Even for us, Ayongo will know, we would wait, go to the bus stop, you give in an envelope, then you tell your mother, please wait for this bus. Exactly. But how does it happen now? Your mother calls and says, hey, do you have 1,000 shillings to send me? And you're like, yes, mommy, and you send it. Mm. So we, technology and science develops. It doesn't only develop for MPs or for mobile money, it also develops for medicines. So this is what we must recognize, that technology for vaccines has been developing over time. And therefore we expect the same rapid development to happen. But does it follow then the same ethical clearance preclinical space, clinical phase one, two, three, four, exactly the same. That's number okay. one. Number two is that for a pandemic, remember that we've not had a pandemic like this since 1918. Now, when mm -hmm. we have one like this that's so disruptive, what do we expect government to do? To put money, the US government put in $1.5 billion last year to support mm -hmm. Moderna and Pfizer and others, Johnson & Johnson, to develop the vaccine. What does that mean? that with new technology and with so much money, it becomes even more faster to actually do the steps that you need to do. What's the final step? Because again, these 100 years we've not experienced this and this is disruptive, the regulatory agencies are aware and they are waiting. So something mm -hmm. that would have taken you three months to file, they're like, no, we are waiting. We have actually cleared our yeah. desks, bring your paperwork. So this is why it was actually accelerated. So it's as if Waikiwe was cleared for a presidential motorcade. No one is going on that road except the vaccine from A to Z, from testing, trial to approvals to the public. That's really helpful to hear because I think somehow in the marketing of this campaign, I think they've missed opportunities to actually educate the public on how the supply chain was really conducted and moved forward, um, which is then I think caused what we're now understanding as vaccine hesitancy. Um, okay, so we understand it's been rigorously tested. The regulatory bodies were ready and waiting. They fast track this in order to respond to this disruptive and truly terrible vaccine. What about some of the long-term studies that may have come under another disease maybe that was not with such urgency or needed such an urgent response? Some of the questions we heard were, do we know what the long-term effects of the vaccine specifically will be? You know, Do we know in five years what this will look like? There's some really terrible things on the internet about everyone who's had this vaccine, this will happen to you in two years or any, any number of, of uh, you know, rumors. So talk to us about that. How can we, I guess, continue to be rooted in, I, in the fact that two years, five years from now, there's not gonna be some kind of new information that's gonna unsteady us or unsteady our faith in this vaccine. Yeah, again, a good question. Now, what happens is that there are multiple technology approaches to making vaccines. Now, some of the vaccines, remember that in the COVID era, we have about 300 candidates. A candidate is a vaccine under development. So we have more than 300. Out of those, about seven or eight have been approved. Now, when you look at this, then you ask yourself, this technology they are using, how long has it been known? Has it been used in the right. past? Okay, because then you would expect long-term effects to come from generally this particular scientific platform. Now, so we know, for example, there are cars, there are diesel engines, there are petrol engines. So are these vaccines being developed the same platforms as those developed in the past? So largely, yes. 
So if you look at, for example, AstraZeneca, it uses a, a vaccine platform we call a vector vaccine. So you use another virus, you put in the genetic code of the disease that you think you want your, to challenge the body on, and that platform has been used for Ebola vaccines all the way from okay. 2014. So then you look at others like um, Johnson & Johnson, the same platform used for polio and BCG is what has been used. So you start to see their similar platforms and therefore you are able to say how long, you know, are there other effects that are known? Now the new vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna are used on what's called the messenger RNA. Now that platform has been under study for more than six years. So we know it's been under study, it's not been discovered for COVID, it's actually been under study for other diseases as well. So that gives you comfort that actually there is okay. white scientific evidence around these platforms. So is that linked to the fact that we know corona, COVID is a part of this coronavirus family of viruses that they've also, it's not new to scientists, right? This is COVID-19 specifically because it's maybe the 19th version of this virus that scientists have seen. And so they're numbering it. So is, is that also, are we seeing also the impact of a virus they know in some form, you know, it's like the cousin of the original, but it's still related, coupled with a system that has been tested and tried for other diseases. Am I understanding that science correctly? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's actually like you've been to an epidemiology class. So the, the, the <laughs> you're rubbing off on me. <laughs> the thing to say is this, that the coronaviruses have been viruses that have been in human beings, you know, in animals for a very long time. There are probably one more than a thousand known coronaviruses, but they reside in animals. Okay. But because okay. of urbanization and climate change, they have started to shift to human beings. So they have been known, they are not new. Now, how many have then jumped? About seven of them have come to human beings over the last 20 years or so. So when we talk about MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, when we talk about SARS, they are all coronaviruses. So there have been huge studies on coronaviruses for the last 10, 15 years. So coronavirus causing COVID-19 is one more of the six now make seven. So the coronaviruses are well known and they are not new to COVID. Now, COVID-19, COVID is a disease. The virus is called SARS-CoV-2, or the, you know, uh, it's, it's a long name, so we don't have to go through that. Right. That's what causes yeah. the COVID disease, but it's actually a coronavirus, just like the other thousands that are known, but only seven have been known to infect human beings. Okay, okay. So let's talk about our home, our beloved home here in East Africa. You know, there has been, I think now as the, once the vaccine entered Kenya a couple of months ago and the first jabs are starting to roll out and now we're a few, few weeks removed from that initial entry point. Questions about specifically around the rollout and the access to the vaccine are, are increasing, I think day by day. Um, so let's talk about what we have here in Kenya. What is legitimately available here in Kenya for people to take in terms of the vaccine? The answer to your question is what is legitimately available in Kenya is AstraZeneca and the AstraZeneca specifically from the Serum Institute of India because the AstraZeneca again is being manufactured in different countries. The one that is Kenya and in African countries is from Serum Institute of India. So it's called Covishield. That's why you hear these names and people are wondering mm -hmm. why is this one this and not this. It's called Covishield in, by branding. Now, there, as I said, there are about seven or eight uh, vaccines that have been approved for use generally. 
And when we talk approved for use, then you have to talk about who approved them. Because uh, as, as a country like Kenya, we have to also have some standards. It doesn't mean that the others are bad, but they haven't been approved through our recognized regulatory sure. agency. So for Kenya, the government has decided to follow the World Health Organization. Not that it's the only approver, but the Kenya has decided, let's follow the ones approved by WHO. So out of the ones approved by WHO, we have AstraZeneca, we have Pfizer, we have Moderna, and now we have J&J, Johnson & Johnson. Does it mean that we don't have other vaccines? No, Sinopharm, Sinovac from China, Sputnik from Russia, are also vaccines that are available and they have been approved by other regulatory agencies by their countries, but not by WHO. So Kenya has decided to follow WHO. And for, within those for WHO, AstraZeneca is the one that is legally available in the country. Okay, so recently there has been the, the extension between the first jab and the second. It's extended from eight weeks to 12 weeks. We had a few questions, why? Why was it extended? Will I be okay with just one jab? So two questions there. Why was it extended? And you know, if I'm not around for that second jab somehow, will I be okay with just one? This is a good time to take water. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Pressure here for, on, a good, on a good answer. Thank you, Lily. Now, um, it's good for people to first understand why you need a first and second dose so that we can then slowly get into it. Number one is when you get, let's assume there are no vaccines. I say there is two ways you can develop acquired immunity. You can yes. develop acquired immunity by getting infected by the particular organism or by being vaccinated. Now, either way, even if you are infected, your first contact with that particular virus or bacteria gives you what's called a primary response. And then if you get infected again, you get what's called a secondary response, which then boosts your ability to protect yourself in the future, okay? Now, okay. vaccines mimic the same thing. So you say you get your first dose and it gives you a primary response. So it triggers your body to start processing this thing you know, it sees these new proteins because vaccines and you know, uh, the viruses and, and bacteria, what they do is they introduce a new protein to you that you okay. didn't know before. Now, when the body gets that protein, it takes a bit of it, runs back to the, uh, its factory and starts to study it. And after it studies it, it's like this is what we need to do and starts to develop some, you know, mechanism to develop, uh, you know, antibody. That takes time. And that's the fast response. So the body keeps some memory, develops some ammunition. So when you give it this again, you can imagine what happens. The body is already aware of that protein. And therefore now the second response is built on a foundation of knowledge. And therefore you have a much better response. That's the reason for the second vaccine. Now, what happens is from protein to protein, meaning from virus to virus, or it depends on the vaccine and the nature of the vaccine, to determine how far the two doses should be. For Pfizer, we know three to four weeks. For AstraZeneca, we know it's eight to 12 weeks. Now, what happens is this, that the researchers will give the vaccine to many people, thousands of them, and then they'll monitor the response through what we call measuring the antibodies developed. And they'll measure them over time, over time. And they will see that maybe by week eight, there is adequate immunity for you to give the second dose. But as they keep monitoring, they might see actually it's even better at 12 weeks. So this data keeps expanding and keeps developing. 
So originally when we started the rollout, the advice was eight weeks. But now we have data that shows that actually if you go the second dose at 12 weeks, the individual has even a better response when you space them out than when you give them at eight weeks. So that is the science that has developed and that's the advice of WHO. That's why the government is shifting from eight to 12 weeks. Okay. Now, for some reason, I, I, I got the first dose, something happens and I'm unable to get the second dose. How will my body respond to the virus if I encounter COVID-19 with just one dose? And again, we'll talk specifically about AstraZeneca because that's what we have here. So again, I'll go back to the original foundation of science that we are giving you acquired immunity. And you can acquire this immunity by being infected or getting the vaccine. Now, if we go back to that, it therefore means if you have had an infection of COVID before, you already have your first initial immunity. Okay. The question yes. is, how long does that immunity last? last. And how strong mm -hmm. is it? We can't still answer that question, but we know that that first immunity from an infection may last anywhere six to eight months. You still have the antibodies, you're still protected. So when you now, if we were to put a parallel and say you've received your first dose, it is equivalent to your first infection. Therefore, when you get your first dose, you also build adequate immunity, just as if you are actually, and that could also last for six, eight, 12 months. So we, again, we can expand that. So the second dose just gives you expanded, longer immunity and stronger immunity, just like if you were, you had your first infection. So ideally we say that with your first infection is like getting your first dose. And with your first dose, you have built adequate immunity just as if you're infected. And we think that actually you get probably a level of up to 50, 60% of if you had both doses. So already your first dose by 14th day gives you some level of immunity. And that's why we don't have, even yeah. in the first infection, we don't have a lot of reinfections. They are very rare. Yes. Uh, it's just like getting the first dose. We don't expect you to get severe disease after you have had your first dose. So no one should worry. And if you don't get your second dose, you don't get any harm in your body. You probably just don't get as strong an immunity as somebody who got both doses. And I think it's a, it's worth pointing out. Thank, thank you so much for that and, and just being so clear. I think it's worth pointing out too because some people confuse, well, you know, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till Kenya has Johnson & Johnson or something. AstraZeneca is only 60 or 70%. But if I understand the science correctly, all those vaccines that you said of the 300 that might were in trial, maybe the seven or eight that are now passing regulatory bodies, all of them had zero percent of uh, patients or uh, participants in those trials who were hospitalized or died as a result of exposure to COVID-19. So that efficacy is quite incredible. Is that is that right? That's a really good point, Lily. And I, I, I think I'll take you into my epidemiology class. Um, to, to, to start <laughs> Kindly. Really, that, that's the point that people must understand. Because what I've had people ask me is, no, no, I'm going to wait for the one that's 90%. I don't want exactly. this one that's now let me say yeah, we, we all want to get a level you know we don't want to stop at uh, halfway no, so exactly. yeah let, let us go back to the fact what does 80 or 60 or 90 mean now when you're doing a study you give the vaccine to let's say 10,000 people and then you monitor how many of those 10,000 got got severe disease that needs hospitalization and you monitor how many got moderate disease meaning they had you know, some serious symptoms, but didn't go to hospital. And then you say, out of the 10,000, 
70% did not get either moderate or severe disease. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that when it's given in your body, it's only 70% effective. It is out exactly. of this population, okay? Now we know that all these vaccines, none, all of them, none of the people who had the vaccine got severe disease to resort to death or hospitalization, zero. Meaning that they are all 100% effective in protecting against severe disease. But when you come to moderate disease, some of them had a few more people getting moderate disease, but none of them had anyone ending up with ICU hospitalization. And that's an important clue for people to remember. But so that's really what you want. You, that's what you exactly. want is to protect yourself against severe disease. And they're all 100% exactly. effective against Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for saying that so clearly. I think that's really, really important. I think we'll have to keep reminding ourselves that, uh, of that. We were watching what's happening in India with tremendous heartache. Uh, it's just heartbreaking. But there's, I feel like, is there a lesson we can learn here in Kenya from what's happening in India? And, and can you help us understand why has it spiraled in the way it has? Um, I know that's a complicated question that you would have to go through 15, 16 months of history, but in brief, could you tell us, you know, why is India just, you know, just spiraled and what can we learn from what's happening in India here in Kenya? Um, now, let me say that in, Probably, if we have another Kililog 12 months from now, that question could be asked about Africa. What happened to Africa? Why did it spiral like that? So we must remember that. Because I think a lot of people think it's something happening in India. If you look at how India was managing COVID last year, if you look at their waves and everything, it was quite innocuous. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. until people started saying, oh, India has escaped the virus. You know, there were a lot of mm -hmm. those conversations. We must remember that even Africa, is likely to end up exactly where India is now. Now, what drives, what has driven what has happened to India? There are three things we need to remember that the virus and the transmission of the virus is dependent on movement of individuals. That when you have an infected person and then you put them in certain situations with other people, then the virus has a perfect condition for movement. Those conditions are one, crowding. Second, close contact. Third, closed spaces. Those three C's, and then you add T, which is time. So you say, if you have crowding in close contact, in a closed space for a long time, you have a perfect condition to infect everyone. Now, if you look at the population of India and movement, then you can start to see why that happened. Religious holidays, political rallies. Now, why did it happen in Italy? Why did those three C's and T come together in Italy and in the US before India. Because if you look at what we call mass transport systems, they are more prevalent in Europe. In fact, in Africa, we saw this happening in South Africa because South Africa has more mass transport systems than any of us. That's why Morocco and Egypt and Ethiopia and South Africa were leading in Africa and Kenya is following and countries like Uganda and Tanzania are behind. It's because of movement, because when you have many people moving together from place to place, then those three C's and T are in perfect, um, you know, uh, orchestra. Yeah. So basically, that's what has happened in India. Now, what is the next thing? That the worry is not the infection, because when the virus is there and you're not vaccinated, you expect people to get infected. So what worries us public health people is the speed of infection, not the infection. So when you have a rapid speed of infection or a high force of transmission, then you fear that instead of having 100 people infected today, you have 10,000 infected today. 
If you had 100, only one would have required ICU. If you have 10,000 and use the same percentage, then you have 1,000 requiring ICU. And then you start to worry. Can I provide, I can provide for one needing ICU, but I can provide for 1,000. Then you start to worry about the capacity of your health system. If your health system was limitless, then you don't have to do in the lockdown. You let people get infected and you take care of them. So what has happened in India is that they have more people needing hospitalization than their health system can manage. So this is really the question we need to ask ourselves. Are we getting more people who need hospitalization than can our health system can manage? Which then brings the complexity of how strong is your health system? Therefore, all of us must push for the government to invest in the health system because if we had more ICU beds than we have now, we wouldn't need lockdowns. We would just yeah. say, let the people get infected and we are able to take care of them. So this is the thinking that we must have. So if we have a huge surge in Kenya, we would have to lock down because otherwise you'd have to watch people die in casualty or in the ambulance because they can't get a bed. That's really the issue, not the actual viral infection. Let's go to the chat first, Dr. Tari, if you don't mind. There are a couple of questions here that are related a lot to those who've already had COVID and the vaccines. So I think there was a study there, an article that came out some months ago, kind of guesstimating what percentage of Kenyans had already had COVID, but maybe had a mild case, it was never documented. And so these questions, I think, speak to that. Some of us who had that bad cold and cough a few, you know, March, April last year, but never got tested, never knew if we had COVID. And so there's a question um, about if I have been infected with COVID-19, do I only need one dose of the vaccine, especially given that you've explained to us what that primary response that our system gives to the invasion of a virus, do I only need one dose? So there is um, science and then there is policy. Hmm. Science informs policy. So for now, the science available is that ideally if you had been infected, it means you need only one dose. There is science emerging like that. But it's not gained enough evidence for it to become policy. So for now we follow the policy, which means whether you are infected or not, you take the two doses because there is no harm at all until we are sure that the infection is equivalent to one dose and therefore you can eventually say yeah if you're infected take only one dose but remember that there is also an implication to that policy decision it therefore means that you must confirm who was infected first before you give them the dose for you to decide who deserves only one or two which then from a health system point of view doesn't make sense because then the cost becomes prohibitive and uh, it becomes too difficult to actually do the vaccination yeah, and we'll come back to that science and policy question, because I think that definitely informs also our the vaccine equity. Um, so, but some similar question that's slightly different though. If the second dose, uh, our second vaccine dose increases responses, response capacity, what is the effect of having had COVID-19 prior to vaccination? So if I had the vac had COVID, I'm getting the vaccine, am I gonna feel worse? Is my body gonna have a stronger reaction if I've already you know, lived through COVID? So what happens is this, if you have had COVID and it's passed and you don't have active infection, you just have more antibodies. You don't have the virus anymore. The virus is gone. You have antibodies. And therefore, when you get your second, in, uh, you know, your first job, it's like the body now is having a secondary response. Now, if you have active COVID infection and you get the vaccine, now what happens is that you are likely to have a little more exaggerated side effects. 
So whereas somebody who had no COVID had just a mild fever or no fever at all, you may get a slightly higher fever, you may feel more fatigued. That's, that's the only thing that will happen. There's nothing that is fatal that will happen to your body. So what do we see, because I've seen questions regarding what if I'm infected, what do I do? So there are many people who are infected and they don't know. As, as it is now, 97%, 93% of our people are positive, but they have no symptoms at all, meaning that there are millions of people who have the virus, but they don't know. So the chance that you'll have the virus and you get vaccinated are very, very high. And there's no harm to that at all. But if you have the infection and you have active symptoms, then you are advised to wait for the symptoms to go before you get infected. Just like we advise when you have a young child who has a fever, we advise to you to wait for the fever to go before they get vaccinated. So it's the same principles we follow. How long do you wait? You wait for the symptoms to go, and anytime three to four days after that, you can get uh, vaccinated. Okay. That was going to be the next question. Somebody was asking, is it 90 days? Is it 14 days? How many days do I wait? So my symptoms end on Monday. I have no fever, no cough, you know, no discomfort. I'm, I'm functioning mostly normal. By Friday or so, I can go for that vaccine and that's a comfortable window to wait. It is a comfortable window to wait. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. It's, really, it's very nice to have a doctor answering these questions instead of Google, because, you know, sometimes Google leads you astray. So it's good to have these, you know, timely responses to our, to our questions. Another question from the audience. We're having so many flooding in, so we'll try and go through these quickly. What are the ramifications of the vaccines for those who are on immu immunosuppressants or have autoimmune issues? So that question is quite common because there are people who are immunosuppressants, maybe you have people on steroids for certain conditions, or they have you know, uh, conditions that suppress their immune response. Now, what it means is this, that number one is that you're more vulnerable to severe disease if you are not vaccinated. So if you got the mm -hmm. infection, you could actually end up with very severe disease. So number one is that the vaccine is needed for you to protect you. Now. The next question that people ask is, is, is there any side effect if I take that and I'm, I'm using immunosuppressants? Remember that if you're using immunosuppressants, the reason they are given to you is to reduce your immune response because maybe your own body has a very active immune process. Meaning that because you're using those, either the infection itself or the vaccine will not develop a stronger response as somebody who has a normal immune system. Meaning that you definitely need two doses because your body is slower to create the immunity you need because of the, the immunosuppressants. And that's the same condition for elderly people. The immune response of elderly people is also lower. So they definitely need two doses to ensure that actually they have adequate protection. I hope that's so that kind of Yeah, so it's not that the vaccine is gonna cause them more harm. It's just that they need both doses to give the body the boost it needs because their body is already a bit suppressed. Exactly. Okay, thank you for that. There is concern that you know we, we may not get the second dose of AstraZeneca or maybe the supply will shortchange. And maybe in the meantime, Johnson & Johnson arrives in Kenya. Can you mix vaccine providers? Could I take a first jab from AstraZeneca, a second from J&J? &J? The answer based on the data we currently have, none of the two vaccines have been tested together on the same individual. That's scientific data. So we can't answer that question because there's no data. Because ideally you'd expect that a certain cohort of people have received both and we've seen how the response works or whether there's any harm. There's no such data. So the current policy is 
do not mix the vaccines. If that data changes in future, and I know there are studies now going on in the UK on what we are calling mix and match. If we get results that it's safe and also gives you a good response, then we could change that in future. For now, there's no data that supports mix and match. Thank you for now, that, Dr. There's a question which was layered there, sorry, Lily, which is around the fear of the second dose. So mm -hmm. maybe we can answer it at the same time because Please. people are afraid the second dose won't come and this kind of thing. So let me put it clear here that the supply of vaccines has been completely constrained globally. Now, out of WHO, there are four vaccines that are approved out of WHO. I say there are about seven or eight in use, but the ones that are approved by WHO is AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, those four. Now, many of the countries like Kenya and across Africa and Asia are receiving their vaccines from a joint uh, delivery system called COVAX. And that COVAX is only taking vaccines that are approved by WHO, meaning that our choice is the four. For now, Pfizer and Moderna have been locked up in the US, okay? And they're also very difficult to deliver because they require negative 70 degrees. So you also have to worry about the programmatic integrity of the vaccine, that you are actually able to get it safely. If you can't get negative 70, even if you have the vaccine, we have to assure you that first we can deliver it to you safely. So these are the considerations. For now, we are relying on AstraZeneca. J&J &J is coming, but J&J &J has also not been available to purchase. Even if it's listed and approved, you can't purchase it anywhere, even if you wanted to, even if the government wanted to get it. Now, AstraZeneca, because it's not a challenge of Kenya, it's a global challenge. It's going to be resolved and we hope that we'll be able to get enough doses for the second dose by the end of May. That's the plan for the government, that's the global plan, and the entire world is working towards that. So don't blame the government. It's actually a global problem that is being resolved with a force, with a global force. So we believe by end of May or early June, we should have enough doses for the second dose. Thank you so much, Doctor. That, I think that's giving people a lot of hope today. So speaking about this COVAX and the availability of these vaccines, we've seen that in the US this week, I think it is Pfizer is gonna be approved for 12 to 15 year olds. What do we know about the impact of vaccination, vaccination on 21 and under, uh, especially because what we have is AstraZeneca right now. So th there's a question from our, from our audience who really wants to know that 21 and under cohort who we're also seeing are coming up with a, a few more serious outcomes than they were a year ago. What do we know about, about their outcomes and their availability of the vaccine? So to do a quick correction there is that AstraZeneca is approved for 18 years and above. Okay. Um, Pfizer is approved for 16 years and above. Now, why so? Let me go back to, uh, I don't think we talked about pregnancy, but if we did not. that keeps coming and we will. But what happens is that when you're developing these, uh, you know, commodity, not only vaccines, even drugs, if you're going to study a drug in people who are under 18 or women who are pregnant, it requires a separate ethical clearance and regulatory process because you're protecting lives inside a mother's womb and you're protecting children who can't give consent on their own. So because of that, when you have an emergency like this, the researchers decide to use the population that's easier to do the study with, which is the adult population. So there was no problem, even when we say it's not approved for under 18, it's not because there was a problem. It's because there was no data to support it because the data first available is the one which is easy to obtain, which is the people who can give their own consent. 
Same with pregnancy. Now, the, what happens is also, you have to look at the risk profile. Right now we know 70% of all our deaths or hospitalization are for people above 50 years. That's a fact. And people who are below 19, for Kenyan data, contribute only 9% of all infections and probably less than 1% of deaths. So therefore, in a, from a public health point of view, you want to focus on where the biggest problem is. So the vaccines are going to be approved for younger children, but they have not been a priority because they have not been at big risk. For now, 18 and above, for Pfizer, 16 and above. Thank you for that. Do you expect that these will roll out soon for young people? I think, you know, we, we our teachers, some of our essential workers, they're being vaccinated now as we understand, you know, they're on the front lines. But then our kids at this age, they should be out, you know, it's not good for them mentally to also be confined. And so I think there's that concern of, can schools really stay open, not just open once, but can they stay open for the long term without children being vaccinated? So, um... This is exactly what I said before, that actually the children are at very low risk of infection mm -hmm. of severe disease. There are many theories around it, but generally we know that they are low risk. So they are not a, a public health priority to immunize, because even if they go out, the bigger risk is probably infecting elderly people who then may right. proceed to severe disease. Because children, even if they get infected, they recover, they move on, and they overcome the virus. So no one should worry about their child being infected because they really, really proceed severe disease. Actually, I think throughout this, we have seen very few children, actually more of them were hospitalized as infants because they have a very low immunity. The, by the time they start getting common colds, remember the common cold is also caused by a coronavirus, largely, or a similar virus to a coronavirus. So these common colds give children some acquired immunity, which may be non-specific and gives them some protection against another coronavirus. So we don't have a big public health challenge with children, but eventually, as science evolves, then they may also be vaccinated to ensure that the virus then doesn't stop circulating in our, in, right. in, in, in our midst. Yeah. Which is what we want, right? At some point, we want it to die out because it can't find a host. It can't find anywhere to live, and we want it to just die out. Not us, but the virus. Someone is asking you to explain asymptomatic infection in relation to these antibodies. Asymptomatic infection relating to antibodies. You're, I, I, maybe what they're saying is if I never was symptomatic, do I still have the antibodies? Who was hospitalized for COVID have better antibodies or longer lasting? Do we know? So let us say this, that any microorganism that lands in your body, a bacteria or a virus, that actually enters your body, your body produces antibodies against it. And that's the body's way of protecting you. So many, many of these come in, the body manages them, you never know that's an asymptomatic infection. You never know, you have no symptoms because the body managed to manage it before it developed any symptoms. Now, the people who develop symptoms, there could be many reasons that are, again are not very clear. One of them could be that if you got a high load of the virus, meaning that you're with somebody who has a high viral load and they are coughing, and therefore you get a big dose of the virus, you're more likely to end up with symptomatic disease because by the time your body, I told you the past response is slow because it is completely new to the body. 
So the body takes time to develop. As you said, Lily, it's actually a beautiful process. If you are to look at how the immunity develops, the body sends and presents this, then starts to match, and you know, it takes time. So if the load of the viruses is too high, then the viruses could overwhelm the body before the body produces that. So the differences could be how much virus did you get? How heavy is your immunity? That's why the elderly people who take long to develop immunity, as I said earlier, are more likely to get severe disease than younger people. So there are many factors here that play, but even asymptomatic people do develop antibodies. That's how they actually overcome the virus. How do we live now, Dr. Ari? We, some of us may get the vaccine in six months, some of us a year later. What would be your parting advice to us as a Nairobi community, as a Kenyan community, of how we manage our work, our life, our families in the coming months as we continue to live in this COVID context? In very uh, simple terms, I would like to say that this is in our hands. And I think until we understand the science behind the public health measures, then we'll keep listening to what the government said. And when the government makes another decision, mm -hmm. we're like, ah, now the virus has gone. There are people who think because the, the things were lifted that there's no more virus. No, they were just lifted because the conditions that are needed to control the virus are not compatible with an active economy. That's the only reason. So you have to balance that. But the virus is still in our midst. So what my urge to my colleagues here is this, take control of the measures yourself and decide so how do you take control of that? Watch out for being in a crowded space. Because as I said, crowding is one of the factors that increases infectiousness. In a place where people are crowded and close contact, and especially in a closed space, anybody would understand what that is. When you go to a bar where there are many people who are shouting and you are there for a long time, you are exposing yourself. That's as clear as that. If you're going to be there for a long time, if you're going to a church, then decide that you're going, you're not going to be closely in contact with anyone. The church is not crowded. It's not, the windows are open and you're not there for a long time. If you're going to a crusade for six hours in a closed space, in a crowded area, then you know you are infected. So you need to take control of this science and therefore make your own decisions. And then when you're going to be in those spaces, then wear your mask because you know you are at high risk. So take control of the public health measures. And then when it's your turn to get vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And I think one more message maybe to our governments as well and to our leaderships of, of, of different entities. You know, when we were in Kilimani yesterday, we talked to many people and, and one of the, the demographics we talked to are people who are immigrants into Kenya, who don't have access to healthcare, who may not get access to this vaccine, who are here for work or for refuge. Um, and this idea of equity will always be with us. You know, I'm with you in Arungu in the sense that human rights, we, it needs to be in, in, ingrained in everything we do. So what is our message now in terms of access to this vaccine? What is your message to government leaders, to leaders of NGOs and other entity, you know, decision-making uh, entities about how we bring some equity to the end of this pandemic? My message is simple, that none of us is safe until all of us are safe. Remember, that when you have a pocket where people are not vaccinated or they're not protected, that becomes a pocket for variants and mutations of the virus because it's playing unchecked. And therefore that variance could actually uh, mutate to a level where it is no longer effective or it's not effective you know, from the current vaccines or treatment. So it's important to ensure 
that everyone everywhere has access. But then that means that our government must invest in the health system. Civil society must agitate for that investment. And we must make sure that achievement of universal health coverage is our responsibility by putting pressure on our leaders all the way from the ward going up to the National Assembly. So this is really what I would like to say. But remember, the fact that you have vaccine doesn't mean now the others don't need it. You are not safe until everyone is safe. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tari. Thank you for your service to our community and to our people. We, we are so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you to the Kilimani Project Foundation, not only for the privilege of working with you on this today, but for the work that you do in our broader Nairobi community. Folks, if you're listening and you want to learn more about what they're doing, there is a link in the show notes to their work, and it can be replicated. So check them out, see what they're doing, and see how you can bring community organizing to your neighborhood. I'm so grateful for all of you for listening. Reach out. I'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Twitter, email, whatever suits you. All the links are in the show notes. And until we meet again, I would love it if you would check out also in the show notes some links to places that could use your support. I put a link in there for AMREF so you can learn more about their work. For some organizations that are working to reach the poor in India where COVID continues just to really wreak havoc. And also a link to um, organizations here in Kenya that are serving the communities that we love and care about. Please check them out, support where you can. And whatever you're doing, whatever's going on, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep at the good work of equity until it gets rooted. Talk to you soon.